0: Broadcasting from the headquarters of the Voice of Prophecy, sitting in a basement studio. My name is Sean Boonster. Welcome to Disclosure, the flagship program from the good folks at the Voice of Prophecy. Today is Bible Question and Answer Day, and I've got a very special guest in studio to help me with that. We're going to look at questions that people have asked me over the years or have actually sent in to the Voice of Prophecy. And uh, my guest in studio is none other than the lovely and talented Naomi Boonstra, who just happens to be, because you you can tell by the last name, there's not a lot of Boonstras in America. We're probably related. We're related somehow, right?
1: I am your daughter, yes. Yeah, 16 years
0: (laughs) old. And uh, how is it that you're here in the middle of the day? Did somebody pull you out of school?
1: I'm actually doing online school this year. Oh, you're doing
0: online school. Well, that's very convenient, so you can come in and work for me during the day.
1: Yes, I can, and I do lots.
0: (laughs) Yeah, You do work, though, don't you? You just spent a summer doing something that you find personally fulfilling and exciting. You were in the great city of Los Angeles, where we used to live, and uh, tell me a little bit about what you do with your summers.
1: Yeah, so I was going door-to-door um, selling Christian materials, books, DVDs, cookbooks. Um, we call it coal-portering. A lot of the world just calls it soliciting. That's a very old word, coal-portering. Yeah. yeah.
0: That, that's like that's probably what they called it in the 1930s and 40s.
1: Right, well, we still use the word. But... Oh, you
0: do? Mm-hmm. Okay, so what do you find rewarding about that? Because you actually like it. I've got to tell yes. you that as your father, it leaves me cold. The idea of ringing a doorbell and not knowing who's on the other side of the door— I can't do it. I think I'd be throwing up in the bushes every time I rang the bell before they came to the door, but you, that doesn't bother you, does it?
1: It did at first. It, it did? definitely did. I um when I first heard of the idea it's because my sister was doing it and I told myself there's no way I'm ever going to knock on someone's door. You know, I'm an introvert by nature. I don't Life. Yeah,
0: I understand that. You and me both. Right. We like to hole up in a, in a room with the door closed and have a book.
1: Right. Yeah. And then your
0: mother worries that there's something wrong, that we're depressed. And exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> She's smiling through the studio window. OK, so your sister was doing it. Yeah. And, and so, you wondered if you would be able to do it as the family introvert.
1: Well, I actually just decided that I would never. And um, One day, uh, Joe Martin, the director of literature evangelism at my school at the time, uh, came up to me, handed me an application, and I just filled it out, sort of no second thought. And when I realized that I would actually be going up to doors, I was terrified. And my first few doors, you know, I'm stuttering, and I hated it. Um, But eventually you start to realize that you genuinely just get a chance to talk to real people um, who may never set foot in a church about God and what you believe. And we start out with a cookbook, so I'm just talking about, you know, nutrition, a lot of the health principles that you can find in the Bible. Mm-hmm. But then a lot of people will ask you, you know, you have a book here with the face of Jesus on it. Um, what's that about? And you get to talk to people about what you believe, and it's really, really cool and fulfilling.
0: Did you have any experiences that you were kind of memorable from last summer? You've done this for a couple of years in a row now, haven't you? Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. So
1: I've done it twice now. Well, just about every day, something amazing would happen. You know, you actually get to watch God work, um, the Holy Spirit in amazing ways that I never would have imagined. But one that really stands out to me is just this last summer, I came up to a porch where a man was smoking. And as soon as he saw me, he put down his cigarette. He's saying, I'm so sorry for smoking in front of you. I'm a man of God. I'm so sorry, but I love your religion. Um, And he started to talk to me about very specific things in the books that I was carrying. And I started to look around, like, did someone else already talk to him? But Yeah,
0: who set the table for this discussion, right?
1: Yeah, no, yeah. nobody. Uh, the Holy Spirit. <laughs> um, yeah. And so I'm kind of freaking out. I'm like, wow, like, he just knows. Like, nobody came in front of me. Um, he just knows looking at me that we're here to talk about God. And he started to talk to me about very specific prophecies um, in one of our books called The Great Controversy. Oh, it's a great book. Yes, it is. And he started to talk to me about very specific things found in that book. So I'm, I show him the book, and he only gives me about half the money that he I, he actually needs to buy the book from me. And so I decide to have a little faith, and I say a quick prayer like, God, please let someone else give me the rest of the money because this guy You want to leave him the book. Of course, yeah, Yeah. and he's talking to me. He's crying this whole time. He's telling me how he's been in prison for 20 years and how nothing's uh, working out right for him, that he just wants to get back into his faith and really be solid this time. So I want to give him this book because it's talking about all these things that he's talking about. Of course, yeah. And so I have a little faith, and as soon as I say that prayer, like someone else give me the money, his friend standing beside him gives me the exact amount that he needs. And this man's still crying, and he's saying, thank you so much. And, of course, I left to go on to the next door. But even just a few doors later, like my leader came up, and I'm still shaking. I'm like, you'll never guess what happened. Because it's just so amazing to see that the Holy Spirit worked on this man right before I got there.
0: Yeah, that's often the case. You find in the book of Acts, there's no such thing as a cold interest. Anytime God sent somebody like Philip in Acts chapter 8 and so on, you discover God got there first. He's always there ahead of you. What I'm hearing you say, though, is not only did you get to spend the summer earning some money for college and that kind of thing, um, but, you know, you're, you're helping people. But it sounds to me like in the act of helping people, what you've discovered is that you're probably the one who gets help the most. It's your own faith grows.
1: Definitely, yeah. I've found that ministry grows me more than even maybe the people who get my books.
0: Yeah, and I've I found that too. It's the thing that keeps me honest, keeps me in the faith. Not that I would abandon the faith if I wasn't active in ministry, but the place that you grow is when you go out and meet folks that don't have Christ, that do need to know more, or have issues in their life and they don't know how to resolve them. And in Mm -hmm. helping them, I've discovered many of them, in spite of the issues they're facing, are actually closer to God than I am, and I learn as much or more from the experience than they do.
1: Right. A lot of people don't have solid answers they've never set foot in a church where someone would explain everything to them but they have a lot more faith even than i do a lot of the time
0: now if people are recognizing naomi's voice there is a reason for that because you do appear on radio regularly don't you
1: yes i do i am in a children's program produced also by the voice of prophecy called discovery mountain
0: tell me a little bit about discovery mountain and then we'll get to our bible questions for the day (laughs) i'm trying to avoid them because it looks like you have a whole stack of very hard questions and the longer (laughs) we talk about you uh, the less likely it is that I'm going to have to look dumb on radio.
1: <laughs> well, Discovery Mountain is an audio adventure story for kids. It basically takes place in uh, a town called Discovery Mountain where the air is clear enough that you can almost hear your own imagination. Oh, you've been
0: on the show a long time. You're actually <laughs> using all the sound bites from the promotional material. I am, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you play?
1: Jamie Simon.
0: Jamie Simon, mm-hmm. tell me a little bit about Jamie Simon and.
1: So in the first season, we see Jamie Simon move to Discovery Mountain, and she's a little weary. She doesn't like moving away from her hometown. Just of like
0: someone else I know. Oh
1: yeah, yeah. Who hates moving? Yeah, we move a lot. Yeah, we do. <laughs> but uh, Jamie Simon learns to love Discovery Mountain, like okay. anyone who moves anywhere usually does. But she finds that. Um, This is a town full of people that God sent for just the right time.
0: Wow. So you enjoy doing that, and you've been at that for—we're in season—we've just completed season seven, I think, has just been recorded, right? Yes, season
1: seven. So we started, I think, three years ago now.
0: Okay. And that's why you have a little bit of a sunburn, because actually you were preparing some very special Discovery Mountain materials just uh, last week up on top of the mountain where the air is thin and the sun is close, Yes, I
1: was. We were actually up at Glacier View Ranch, which is where we're filming— for a new Discovery Mountain production that's actually live action for a Vacation Bible School program.
0: Fantastic. I noticed a few of you have sunburns because, actually, Jake Donovan, or the voice of Jake Donovan, is sitting over your shoulder in the control room. Yes, he is. And uh, he got a good sunburn. Actually, some of the crew, a lot of the actors in that series are volunteers, and they came back with sunburned lips. I can't believe how many people <laughs> had sunburned lips, which just looks terribly painful. Yeah. yeah. And uh, and Harim, actually, last week fell out of a canoe into... Probably the most did. disgusting lake I've ever seen in my life.
1: Yeah, like, full of leeches. Weeds. Yeah, you guys
0: came up. Somebody came up, Harim, with a leech on. Them. Was that you or Doug? Director Doug had a leech he had on a him. Yeah, a leech on him. Been in the water for oh, two man. seconds. I saw
1: him fall in. But yeah,
0: whose fault was that, Harim? That whose fault was it that the canoe went over? No, don't just shrug. Turn on your microphone. Come on, <laughs> whose fault was it? Whose fault was it that the canoe went into the lake?
1: Um, could have could have been you know either either one of our faults you know. Oh, Probably that is mine, though, what a I
0: duplicitous answer. I was there. I saw what went down. Probably Doug would say that too. Yeah. Doug said it was your fault. Yeah. <laughs> Doug, at least you didn't have a camera. Doug's camera went into the lake.
1: It did. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So discovery mountain, where can people find discovery mountain?
1: Discovery mountain. You can go to discoverymountain.com, I believe. Okay. Yeah.
0: And meet Jamie Simon. You know, yeah. what's interesting is that I've been all over the world in the last little bit and I, uh, I landed in, um, Australia a little while ago and the kids came running up I went to an event hey what do you play on Discovery Mountain I said well I'm Chaplain Simon and they said oh and walked away (laughs) because I was not they were hoping that I would be Jake Donovan obviously I'm not Jamie Simon but they, they were hoping I'd be one of the cool and then they asked where's Miss Jean which is your mother and my wife. Right. Where's Miss Jean? She's not here. Oh. And more of the kids walked away. It's like, okay, I get I get it. I'm not yeah, cool. You're
1: not one of the cool characters. I'm not
0: one of the cool ones. No. I'm a I'm the character that keeps getting sent to Afghanistan. I know how right. this works, right? If you send a character to Afghanistan every other season, you're going to write them out of the show you're eventually. Yeah. That's what's happening there. All right, let's look at the Bible questions. And actually, before we get sure. to the ones that people send in, you told me that you might have some of your own today.
1: Yes, I do. I have a couple that I want to touch on just before we get into the ones that people send in. Okay. Uh, My first one here is, who are the Nephilim? Uh, While I was going door to door, I've found people talk to me about this and they told me some things that sounded pretty crazy to me, but um, I'd never heard the word.
0: Yeah, the Nephilim. (laughs) Or the Nephilim, some people say. You'll hear that a lot in conspiracy theories, uh, conspiracy theory circles, right? You listen to late-night talk radio, you'll hear more about the Nephilim. And Mm. I'll admit it. I'm addicted to late-night radio. I never sleep anyway. So I listen to all these weird shows in the middle of the night, you know, the ones where people call in about the flying saucers they've seen and stuff. And and people talk about the Nephilim as if there's some kind of alien that visited planet Earth a long time ago, and maybe even uh, started human life here. They came way back when. This is kind of in the f- range of um, Eric Van Daniken. Have you ever heard his name, Eric Van Daniken? I haven't. No. A book in the '60s called uh, "The Chariots of the Gods." The, oh, that sounds. Familiar. Okay, yeah, yeah. It was the idea that aliens came to planet Earth thousands and thousands of years ago, started the human race, maybe found us as monkeys, and then sort yeah. of did some genetic experiments and turned us into human beings. Um and other people say the Nephilim are some kind of alien human hybrid that uh that they didn't just mess with our genetics, but we're you and I are part hominid or monkey ape. We're part great ape and we're part alien. And uh, and the reason that people say this stuff is because of something found in Genesis chapter 6. We're gonna, let's take a look at this. This make a good Bible study. Who are the Nephilim in the Bible? Are they aliens? And we'll take a look at the passage. It's in Genesis chapter 6. Uh, I wonder if we're going to run out of time before the break. No, we won't run out of time. Genesis chapter... Oh, we are going to run out of time before the break. I see the break coming up. Genesis chapter 6. And um, verse 1. Are you there? Yes. All right, Genesis 6. Now it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. Chose, rather. And, uh, and it continues in verse 4. There were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. And so here's the theory. Here's the theory that you're going to hear from people, that the sons of God are obviously angels, and they'll refer to like Job chapter 38, the sons of God sang. Um, or the stars, sorry. That's the stars. I messed it up. But people, the theory is that the sons of God are angels, and the daughters of men are human women, and that angels and Human women had babies together, and they became these monstrosities, these massive giants. I hear the music. That means we're going to have to finish answering this. But does that sound like the theories that people were telling you at the door? That's exactly what I was hearing, yep. Ancient aliens, Mm -hmm. uh, angels, and human beings. There's a perfectly good answer to this, and I guess we're going to have to take a break. As we take that break, grab a pen and paper, listen to this announcement, this offer from the people of the Voice of Prophecy. This is one you're not going to want to miss out on. It'll help enrich your spiritual life, help you dig deeper into the Word of God, And uh, so you write that stuff down and we'll be right back.
2: As you may know, the Voice of Prophecy is supported by people just like you. We provide Christ-centered programs and Bible studies free of charge so that no one is left out. If you've been blessed by these programs and would like to pay it forward, we invite you to visit vop.com give to make your tax-deductible donation. We're equipping the world for Christ to come, and your support will make a direct impact on so many lives. That's vop.com give.
0: Earthquakes, tornadoes, wildfires.
2: Around us, homes are being lost, lives
0: are threatened, and some people are asking the question, does god even care about me the bible answers that question and what it says is very encouraging find out what god says regarding this topic and some of life's greatest issues in our free discover bible guides go to vop.com and click on study or call us 888-456-7933
2: do you feel as if you have more questions than answers in your life Are you searching for answers to some of life's biggest questions? The Discover Bible Guides can help you find the answers you're looking for. Visit us at BibleStudies.com or call us at 888-456-7933 for your free Discover Bible Guides and begin your journey today to discover answers to life's deepest questions.
0: we better sit up straight, because they've told me that the break is over. We are back on the air. My name is Sean Boonstra. You're listening to Disclosure. I'm in studio with Naomi Boonstra, my youngest daughter. And uh, you're my favorite 16-year-old daughter. Thank you. Yeah, you're quite welcome. And uh, we were talking about Bible questions, and the question you asked before the break was...
1: What is the Nephilim?
0: The, who are the Nephilim? Who what are, are the Nephilim? Yeah. Or the Nephilim, some people say. And we were talking about the fact that you'll hear an awful lot of really weird theories about this. Um, you know, people saying that angels married human women and had giant babies and that kind of thing. But really, this is a case of—that's that. That's a modern theory. You really didn't hear this if you go back in time because it's not in the scriptures, this idea that aliens or angels sort of bred with human beings or messed with our genetic code. What you call that is eisegesis. Exegesis is when you read the Bible text and you try and pull the meaning out of it. Like the word "ex" is there. means out of, right? Exit. Um, so exegesis is trying to get the real meaning out of the text. What this is is called eisegesis. It's when you read something into the text, you're putting meaning in there that wasn't there originally. Okay. And with the whole giants and alien theory, it's really a case of eisegesis. Now, were there giants in the Bible? Well yeah, you know Goliath is a prime example of a giant. It defines his height. I think it's somewhere around eight feet and I know people used to make fun of that until a guy by the name of was it Robert Wadlow uh, at the beginning of the 20th century pretty much scaled. I don't know if he broke eight feet if he was like seven eleven seven eleven. I know that's funny seven eleven or eight foot one. Uh, so Goliath would be what's considered a giant, and so let's be clear on what giants are in the Bible. Uh, they're not like the Jolly Green Giant on a can of corn, right? Who stands 800 feet above a village and ho ho ho, Green Giant kind of thing. Goliath, around eight feet tall. Um, no, hey, I wrote it down here in my in my notes. Robert Wadlow was eight foot eleven. Can you imagine? Oh, almost eight foot nine 11? feet. Wow. Yeah. Now I couldn't if I were to stand next to him. He's fifty percent taller than I am. Wow. And twice your mother's height almost.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Although
0: my no, 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 mom's almost five foot tall. Are we're the 11. Nephilim these big, big physical giants? Let's look at that text again. Genesis 6, verse 1. Follow along with me here. Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them, that the who in verse 2. Sons of God. Sons of God saw the who? Daughters
1: of men. Daughters
0: of men, that they were beautiful, took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. So some people read this passage and they say that the sons of God were angels and the daughters of God were human women. But that's not the case here. You have to read into that. It doesn't actually say that. Um, And if you were to interpret it that way, that angels are taking human wives, it flies in the face of something that Jesus said in Mark 12, verse 25. He said angels do not marry. They're not given in marriage. They don't operate like Us, right? Right. In heaven, actually, the question was some people brought a trick question to Jesus. This woman's had a whole bunch of husbands. When she comes up in the resurrection, whose wife is she going to be? And Jesus said, You don't understand. In heaven, you're going to be like the angels, not marrying or giving in marriage. So it flies in the face of that. We don't have any instance in the Bible anywhere of angels actually reproducing the way that we produce. Here's what's going on in this passage there are two kinds of people after the fall into sin. There are those who side with the serpent satan right the ones who are the seed of the serpent so to speak and you have the other group that's waiting for messiah to come there's a promise in genesis 3:15 that the seed of the woman would come to defeat the serpent right crush his head right. basically what it's telling us is that the human race would divide into two kinds of people after the fall everybody is has sinned everybody is a sinner but you've got one group that um One group that loves sin, and they wallow around in it, and they just love it, and they follow it, and they're rebellious against God. There's another group that hates sin, and they're sort of sorry about the predicament we're in, and they're waiting for Messiah to come. The sons of God are those who are living by faith, waiting for Messiah to come. The daughters of men is a description of those who have adopted a strictly human program. We'll save ourselves. We'll make our own empire, and and so on. It's the description. It's sort of the difference between a lamb and a pig.
1: I see. So rather than looking at angels versus humanity, we're just looking at righteous versus unrighteous. That's
0: right. Repentant versus unrepentant might be even right. closer. It's the difference between a lamb and a pig. If you've got a lamb and a pig running around in a field and they both fall in a mud puddle, they're both dirty, right? Just like everybody has sinned. But the reaction is completely different. The pig loves the mud. He just lays in there, wallows around, Ooh, I love mud, right? And uh, the lamb gets up and runs to the shepherd and wants to be cleaned off. That's the difference, essentially. You've got human beings who love sin. They're going to wallow in it. I'll run my own program. They're essentially the ones who say to God, no, thank you, sir, I'll do things my own way. Hmm. And you've got others who say, all right, I'm a sinner. I know I'm broken, but I'm waiting. I'm leaning on Messiah. Those are the sons of God. What this is describing is a forbidden marriage. The Bible tells us not to have believers marry unbelievers. How can two walk together except they be agreed? Do not be unequally yoked. And instead of sticking with believers and starting their families with another believer, they're marrying into unbelievers, as you described it, or the unrepentant, and their offspring are described as giants. Why? Look at verse 3. The Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his day shall be 120 years. So he's anticipating the flood. Noah would preach for another 120 years before judgment came. So we know these people were going to be very, very wicked. That's the context for this passage. It's describing people that are so wicked that God would actually do something about it. He would intervene. Then verse 4. There were giants on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and bore children to them. These were the mighty men of uh, who were of old, men of renown. Verse 5. Then the Lord saw that the what? Verse 5. The Lord saw that the? Did you fall asleep on me already? Wickedness of man was great in the earth. (laughs) Right. So, And that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. What's it talking about? It's talking about wickedness. Now, the word Nephilim is based on a word that is there. It's the word for giants. In the Hebrew, it's Nephil. Nephil. So we get Nephilim or Nephilim. Nephil. The word literally means a bully or a tyrant. It has nothing to do with how tall these people were.
2: So we're
1: these, looking at symbolic giants.
0: Yeah, they're giants. They're legends in their own mind. Um, these people are bigger than life. They're arrogant against God. They're giants in their egos is what they are. Okay. Because the word means bully or tyrant. This is someone who pushes their weight around and is larger than life. That's the literal Hebrew word. It has nothing to do with how tall they were. So these aren't alien hybrids. Now take a look at Genesis chapter 10 with me. And you find the story of Nimrod, who's sort of the arch-rebel against God in the Bible because he's the founder of the city of Babylon. Take a look at it. Genesis 10, verse 8. Go ahead and read that for me.
1: Cush begat Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one on the earth.
0: What did he begin to be?
1: A mighty one on the earth. Mighty one
0: on the earth. That's sort of the same concept that we saw with the giants. He's a mighty one. He's bigger than life. He's a bully and a tyrant. And it says in verse 9, keep going.
1: He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord.
0: Right. And the beginning of his kingdom was?
1: Babel, Erech.
0: I gave you all those foreign names on purpose. Akkad, Kalna, (laughs) and the land of Shinar. He's the one who founds the city of Babylon. And Babylon is the symbol of arrogance and rebellion against God. That's the symbol of human self-sufficiency. And so he's a mighty one on the earth, but it doesn't mean it in a good sense. He's mighty in his own estimate. Right, he's got a super-sized ego, and you you know people like this. They're they're legends in their own mind, and they right. push other people around because of it. He's a nephil, he's a giant in his own mind. Now, there might have been taller people, not beyond the realm of possibility. Sometimes when we dig around, we discover people were much taller than than we are today. But uh, this isn't talking about human alien hybrids or angel alien hybrids. It's talking about the size of their egos. Giant they're nephil, they're bullies and tyrants. And that was probably a 10-minute answer for something that could have been answered in one word. I could have said, nope, they're bullies. <laughs> all right. What, other, what else have you got for me?
1: Uh, my next question is, what does God look like? I know we look at um, sometimes symbolic. Right. But what does God actually look like? Because we see a lot of the time the Trinity presented as Jesus is the physical one. Right. The Holy Spirit's just all around us. But what is God the Father
0: right look like. well here's all we can do we can only go by the data that we have in the scriptures because it's not safe particularly when we're going to talk about the nature of god himself or god the father it's not safe to go into human speculation we have to go with the data that's available in the bible so let's take a look at some of that data here's what we know i think today the best answer i can give you is what we know and what we don't know and be honest about that uh point number one The Bible teaches no man has ever seen the Father. Here's what Jesus said. Read John 6 and verse 46 for me. These are the words of Jesus.
1: All right, Right? it says, Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God, he has seen the Father.
0: Basically, he's saying he's the only one who's laid eyes on the Father. So here's the first challenge we've got. He's telling us nobody has actually seen the Father, looked him in the eye. So that's point number one. Jesus said, "We, you know, this is gray territory for you and me. We don't really know what we're talking about. Number two, uh, if you want to know what God the Father is like, if you want the best close approximation, and we're not talking necessarily about physical appearance here, but the closest approximation we have is Jesus himself. Take a look at John 14 and verse 9 where he's talking to Philip because Philip asked Jesus, show us the Father, show him to us. What is, what's the answer? Verse 9.
1: Uh, it says, Jesus said to him, have I... Been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip. He who has seen me has seen the Father. So, how can you say, Show us the Father?
0: Right. So, basically, uh, Jesus is saying, If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. This is as close to your understanding. So, what Jesus is in one way, I mean, there's a lot of things that happen when Jesus becomes a human being, when he, the second person of the Godhead takes on a, a physical incarnation. There's a lot of things that happen, but one of the things that happen is that Jesus is putting God in a package that you and I can understand with our minds, in you know, with our finite minds and our finite understanding. So if we want to know what the Father is like, Jesus sets himself up as, this is where you look. You look at me. So the first thing we know, nobody has seen the Father, the Bible teaches. Secondly, if you want to know what God the Father is like, you look at Jesus. And then thirdly, the Bible does say that it's not permissible for us in our sinful state to actually look on God's face. There's a story in Exodus where Moses wants to see God's glory. Show me your glory. And here's what happens. Look at Exodus 33 and verse 19. This is God responding to Moses when he asks if he can see him. Take a look at what it says. Read that one for me.
1: All right, Exodus 33:19 through 20 says... Then he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live.
0: Right, so there you go. This is talking about our sinful state. Ever since we fell into sin and our sin separated us from God, we can't stand in the presence of a holy God. So one of the reasons we can't just look on God the Father's face is it would kill us, mm-hmm. you know, his unbridled glory. Um, it, you know, when we're separated from God, it's not just a punishment. It's also for our own good and our sinful state. We'd be destroyed. Have a look at, at Moses at the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. And um, and here's what God says to Moses at the burning bush. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was what?
1: Afraid to look upon God. Right.
0: See, Moses even has an intimate relationship with God, um, and the Bible describes that relationship as speaking face-to-face, but he's afraid to look, because in our sinful state, we can't look upon God the Father. There's something When he had an intimate relationship or an exposure to God on the mountain, God said, I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock. I'll just let you see some of me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he came down off the mountain, and his face was so brilliant and glorious that uh, the people couldn't look at him. Would you put a veil over your face, Moses? We can't even look on that. So the, there's the problem with the question, what does God the Father look like, is we have not been allowed to look for a very, very long time. And so we have to go on the data that we have. I hear the music, but there's a little more to this Bible study I think that we could pick up after the break. Uh, so what we're going to do is uh, take a few seconds off from the program. Our question is, what does God look like? And I think behind your question is, does God the Father have a physical appearance? I think that's part of what you're Basically, asking. Yeah. yeah. So we'll come back to that in a moment. Grab a pen and paper. You do want to take advantage of another fantastic offers from The Voice of Prophecy, and we'll be right back.
2: Disclosure is just one of the programs brought to you by The Voice of Prophecy, like the audio adventure program, Discovery Mountain. Discovery Mountain is a weekly Bible-based program for kids of all ages and backgrounds. Your family will enjoy faith-building stories with Jake Donovan, (laughs) Mr. Simon, and others in this small mountain town. Each summer, campers visit Discovery Mountain, where they sing songs, learn about God, and reenact a Bible story with the help of drama teachers, Miss Wendy and Miss Tamara. With 24 full episodes every year, and programming every week, your family will have something uplifting to listen to every week. Listen to episodes on demand and watch video features from Director Doug at DiscoveryMountain.com or on your favorite podcast platform. That's DiscoveryMountain.com.
0: And the sound of the music tells me we are back on the air. I'm in studio with my daughter, Naomi Boonstrom. My name is Sean Boonstra. You're listening to Disclosure, and we're answering Bible questions today. And the question we were talking about right before the break was...
1: What does God look like?
0: Right. And so far, we've identified a few things. We kind of have an issue, right? Because the Bible says no man has seen the Father, and we're not permitted to see his face. Moses was told that on the mountain when he asked, hey, can I see you, God? And at the burning bush, Moses shielded his own face because he's afraid to look at God. And yet the Bible talks about Moses, you know, having a relationship with God that's described as being face-to-face. And so some people say, well, he obviously saw God's face. No, this isn't describing the same way that you and I would, you know, talk about being— when you and I say we're having a conversation face-to-face, we're sitting down at a table and—
1: Means we're looking at each other. Looking at each other. This
0: is a little bit different. Look at Exodus 33, verse 11. It says, so the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And somebody might be tempted to say, "Uh "Aha! see, they saw each other's faces. And he would return to the camp, but his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, did not depart from the tabernacle. Verse 20, but he said, you cannot see my face for no man shall see me and live. And verse 23, then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So, when it says that Moses saw God face to face, it's talking about the relationship that they have. However, you will notice this God must have had some kind of physical presence there because Moses obviously exists in space and time. He's got three dimensions plus the dimension of time. And God showed up in that environment. He saw something. I'll show you my back, I'll show you something. So, there must be some kind of physical presence. On the, at the same time, we want to be careful that we don't try and make God too much like us right mm. that we don't get so specific people for a long time have drawn pictures of God the Father and God has told us don't don't even try to do that because we you'll, don't yeah you'll never understand um, there should be some similarities it says that Moses saw his back right right so and we were made in his image we're not entirely sure what that means it could mean a variety of things um, but uh, God does obviously have some kind of physical presence God the Father. Um, you know, Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah saw God sitting on the throne and he stood there with angels. Angels have a physical presence there in the courts of heaven. Um, there's got to be something there. Jesus went back to heaven as a physical human being. When he rose from the dead, he said, look, touch me and see. If, mm. You know, I'm not a spirit. Give me something to eat. And so there
1: must be a physical place for him to go back to. There has
0: to be because he went returned in a physical uh, sense. You know, he even ate in front of the disciples, fish and honeycomb and that kind of thing. And so there's got to be a physical place. And Revelation chapter 5, Daniel chapter 7 have a throne room where Jesus approaches the throne of God. And he obviously has a physical form at that point and so on. So, yeah, he has a physical form of some kind. We don't know too much. And Mm -hmm. I think it's probably dangerous to get too specific because, you know, we can't deal in what the Bible doesn't say. Did you just tap the microphone with your pen?
1: I didn't mean to. No, that was me. That was you.
0: I'm blaming you. Yeah.
1: (laughs) It's sort of a sad commentary on how sinful we really are that we can't even look at God anymore, how far we are from actually understanding.
0: Yeah, and here's the beautiful thing, though, is his promise is to bring us back into his Mm -hmm. presence. Um, What you find over in the book of Revelation—yeah, I didn't look this up ahead of time, but Revelation— Chapter 21, if you're at home and with your Bible revelation, of course, is the final book of the Bible. And some of these passages in the very end are some of my all-time favorites. And uh, Revelation 21, uh, verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. Mm. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying, nor any pain, for the former things have passed away. The the promise is that God tabernacles among us. We will be brought back into his presence. And that's really uh, what Jesus enabled for us at the cross of Calvary. He dealt with our sin problem. He becomes one of us becomes the new head of the human race, and then lives with us for all eternity. Hmm. His favorite title, you know, you find Jesus is described in the New Testament as the Son of God and the Son of Man. Guess which one Jesus called himself most? Son
1: of Man. Son of
0: Man, because he wants to identify with us just that closely.
1: And, of course, Emmanuel, God with us. So we did get a sort of godliness explained in human terms through Jesus.
0: Right. And so Jesus is with us. He is God and uh, in our presence so we do have and if you've seen me you've seen the father right right so there you go it's sort of the best answer we can come up with but we do have to live with what the scriptures teach all right what else have you got for me today
1: all right so the ones those that's it for my questions. that's it for your
0: questions well those weren't too bad you're you obviously (laughs) spent a lot of time thinking about that in like the quietness that's where you're an introvert you go in there and think (laughs) up these hard questions i just contemplate the universe
1: they sort of play in my mind But what some other people have sent in, uh, the first one here, is Donald Trump the anointed one? Oh, here we go. We're going to have a Donald
0: Trump question. Political. (laughs) All right, we're going to wander into dangerous territory, a political question. Go for it.
1: (laughs) Is Donald Trump the anointed one of Daniel 9? If you add seven weeks, 49 years to 1968, when the Knesset decided to rebuild the Jewish quarter, you get 2017, the year Trump declared Jerusalem to be the capital of Israel. It also seems beyond coincidence that Israel became a nation in 1948, but that the U.S. opened its embassy in 2018, 70 years later, as in the 70-week prophecy.
0: Yeah, that's quite a question. And, you know, oddly enough, I've, uh, I've actually seen this one before. Well, it and, sounds
1: well thought
0: out. Yeah, it's well thought out, and this one is making the circles. I'll say this first of all. Whoever happens to be the current president always seems to show up in Bible prophecy because that generation writes that president in somehow. Mm. And uh, that's not to say that they'll always, always be wrong, but I remember when Barack Obama was was president, the theory started going around, he must be the Antichrist. He must be the Antichrist because Barack and, Oba- and Obama um when jesus said i saw satan fall from the heights i think it was bama and and anyway it was silly it was just a silly thing and now he's no longer president it proved he wasn't the antichrist and and so on now it's donald trump and we find things swinging the other way and people saying oh he's the anointed one of daniel 9 which you know is he well daniel 9 is one of the most important prophecies of the whole bible and we could probably spend the rest of this program studying daniel 9 might not be a bad idea Um, I'm going to spend a lot of time in Daniel 9 in a series I'm doing called Reading Daniel, where we'll unpack it verse by verse. But the short answer is, is Donald Trump the anointed one of Daniel 9? I could answer this in one word. No.
1: No. No, he's not
0: the anointed one of Daniel chapter 9. Now, here's why people are asking that question now. Some people are starting to compare Donald Trump to Cyrus. Cyrus was the Persian king who liberated the Jews from Babylon. He okay. conquered the city of Babylon, and he allowed them to go back and rebuild their city. You find mention of him in 2 Chronicles 36. Let's take a look at this, because this is going to take a little Bible study, but it's useful to understand why people are making the comparison with Donald Trump and Cyrus the Persian king. Here's what it says in 2 Chronicles 36.22. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the, the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. So Cyrus is not Jewish. Cyrus is probably Zoroastrian, which was a monotheistic Persian religion. And yet this is telling us in 2 Chronicles 36 that God stirred up the spirit of Cyrus. He uses this non-Jewish king to do something for him. So that he made a proclamation, it continues, throughout all his kingdom, and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth, the Lord God of heaven has given me. And that's certainly true. He probably built the world's first genuine world empire uh, where he had sort of a multicultural empire and conquered the whole known world in his day. And he recognizes at this point that the Hebrew God had given that to him. And he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. So he's saying, "You're gonna, I'm going to let the Jews go home and rebuild the temple that Nebuchadnezzar destroyed. Now, Here's where people are finding a parallel. It's really hard, and I don't mean this in a judgmental sense, but it's really hard to think of Donald Trump as a Christian in the born-again traditional sense. It really is. Um, And yet he won the White House with an awful lot of Christian support. Evangelical America absolutely supported Donald Trump. And I I don't want to judge Donald Trump because only the Lord really knows his heart. That's not what I'm getting at. Uh, But I'm going to suggest that he might not... Well, he may be a practicing Christian. I don't want to be judgmental, but he's certainly not clear on some things. Like when he was asked, when he was running for president, if you ever asked God for forgiveness, he said, no, no, I just try to make things right. Well, well, principle number one in becoming a Christian is, you know, admitting your sins and yeah, repenting of it. that's
1: sort of central. All
0: right. Now, we don't want to judge. I don't want to, I don't know the president's heart and mind. I, I really don't. Um, But a lot of the community out there has been flabbergasted. Why are Christians holding out Trump as their best hope? Because, well, his personal moral track record hasn't been the best either necessarily, and so everybody's flummoxed. Why are the Christians supporting this guy? Let me make some suggestions, and then we'll go back to Daniel chapter 9 and unpack that a little bit. How does that sound? All right. All right, here we go. Some of what happened, Christians latched on to Donald Trump, I think, because to be honest, some of what happened under the former administration was kind of frustrating to a lot of Christians. Uh, You know, to the point where we had the bakery in Colorado being compelled to create a same-sex wedding cake. We had the Little Sisters of Colorado, a group of nuns, being compelled under law to provide birth control to uh, their employees. Uh, under penalty of law, and so a lot of Christians didn't like that very much.
1: Yeah, the cultural climate for Christians just hasn't been great lately. No, it hasn't, and and,
0: and I'm not trying to blame, but this is the sentiment that people had under the former administration. We also had a president under the former administration who talked about bitter, angry people who clung to their guns and religion. Well, Mm. that sounded demeaning to a lot of Christians. Uh, So right or wrong, a lot of Christians, as you were saying, Naomi, felt as if the political climate in America had kind of turned against them. Personally, I do share some of those concerns, although I don't feel persecuted. Do you feel persecuted?
1: No, No. not at all.
0: You started the show by saying you were free to go door to door and talk about Jesus.
1: Right. You can't do that in a lot of countries. Right.
0: So we are free. We're free to say what we want on the air today. And so we're not being persecuted. I think that we have exaggerated that to some extent. Um, But there are a number of reasons that people have clung to uh, Donald Trump because he seemed to favor Christianity. It's kind of what happened under Constantine back in the 4th century. Constantine conquers Rome. Christians have been persecuted, and he kind of favors Christians, so everybody latched onto Constantine. I think there's an element of that. People are kind of latching onto Donald Trump. So that's why some people see Trump as kind of a Cyrus figure. Cyrus liberated the Jews, and some Christians are saying, ah, Donald Trump has liberated us to sort of practice much more freely. And even the fact that Donald Trump probably isn't an exemplary Christian, they say, but Cyrus was an exemplary, wasn't an exemplary Jew either. So they see a parallel. And they see I such see. a parallel that some people have minted coins that have Donald Trump and Cyrus together oh, really? on it. Yeah, I've seen. I was going to buy one on eBay. I just didn't want to spend the money <laughs> on it. You know, But it goes deeper than that. The question that you read referenced the prophecy in the 70-week prophecy in Daniel chapter 9, and we really don't have time to dissect that in a lot of detail. I think we're going to take a break pretty soon, and we'll go and have a little Bible study in Daniel 9 and see why people might think, you know, Donald Trump's the anointed one and and why I said no to that. Um, And I like doing this. We'll slow down for it, because the 70-week prophecy is easily one of the most stunning pieces of evidence we have that the Bible really is supernatural. There's no explaining daniel 9 in the 70 week prophecy except that somebody with supernatural knowledge wrote that chapter of the bible because it just got absolutely everything right hundreds of years in advance and then we'll look at the anointed one he does show up in that prophecy and ask the question is that really donald trump no and i'm not going to today i don't want to speak for or against any president that's not what we do here um but I'm going to ask what the question is. Is he the anointed one? And I'm going to show why I say no. I don't think he is. And so I hear the music. Did I, You spent so much time talking in that last segment, Naomi, <laughs> that we ran out of time. Right, that you're was me. A, yeah, you're such a blabbermouth. You just Sorry. filled up the whole time with all that talk, talk, talk. So I hear the music. We're going to have to take another little break. And when we come back, is Donald Trump the anointed one of Daniel chapter 9? I'm going to defend the position. No. We'll be right back.
1: Retirement planning can be a stressful process, but it doesn't have to be. The friendly people at The Voice of Prophecy can walk you through the entire process and explain all of your options based on your specific needs. Whether you'd like to set up a trust for income or make a gift that will benefit your loved ones and change lives through The Voice of Prophecy, we're here to help. To learn more, call 1-800-348-5993.
0: You toss and turn in bed and find yourself awake in the middle of the night. Your mind is in turmoil and you're overstressed with the stuff of everyday life. You need peace and calm in the middle of the storm. The answer you need is found in our free Discover Bible guides. You can get yours by contacting us at VOP.com. Click on the tab that says study or call me at 888-456-7933. That's 888-456-7933. The question before us is Donald Trump, the anointed one of Daniel chapter 9. My name is Sean Boonstrom. I'm in studio with my daughter, Naomi Boonstrom, and uh, we were discussing a little bit why maybe the evangelical community in America gravitated toward Donald Trump because they perceived in him somebody who would, well, maybe help reverse some of what many Christians felt was unjust toward them. And I'm not commenting on whether it was or wasn't unjust or any of that, but the, the question is, is he really the anointed one? Um, and can he be compared to Cyrus? A lot of people are comparing him to Cyrus. Let's go, Naomi, to the uh, 70-week prophecy because it's one of the most stunning pieces of evidence we have in the Bible that there really is a God who's out there. It's one of the things that convinced me. As you know, the Israelites had to go into captivity. Yes, And their sins led them into captivity for a period of 70 years because Jeremiah predicted that it would be 70 years long. And the reason they had to go into captivity that long is because they ignored the Sabbath for 490 years. Hmm. Well, the Sabbath is one-seventh of that time. So if you take one-seventh of 490, the answer is? Seventy. yeah, exactly. You, you actually seem surprised that you got that right. You love math so much. Right, so 70. So they go into captivity. Basically, they're keeping all of the Sabbaths that they missed for all that time, 70 years. But in Daniel 9, those 70 years of captivity are coming to a close. And what happens in that chapter, if you read the context carefully, is that God is about to liberate the Jews using Cyrus the Persian to set them free, and he's going to give them one more chance, one more chance to do things right. So they sinned for 490 years, but now they're going to get a second chance. How long do you think the second chance should probably last?
1: 490 years. And that's
0: exactly what happened. Now look at this carefully. Daniel 9, verse 24. Go ahead and read that for me.
1: 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. Okay,
0: who would Daniel's people be? The Jews. Jews. And what would Daniel's holy city be? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. The angel Gabriel is telling Daniel they're going to get one more chance, another seventy weeks, which would be four hundred and ninety days. And what's interesting here is that the word for weeks is Shabuah. That's the Hebrew word of the day for us. Shabuah, which is often used to describe weeks of years instead of weeks of days. This is seventy weeks of years. So seventy times seven years, it's four hundred and ninety years. All right? Daniel 9, verse 24, again, uh, says, Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. So we know there will be 70 weeks of years or 490 more years, but then it gets even more specific. Take a look at verse 25 and read this for me.
1: It says, Know therefore and understand that from The going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again, and the wall, even in troublesome times. Okay,
0: tell me, who's the key character mentioned in that verse? Who is it?
1: Jesus. Right,
0: how do you know? What's the title that's
1: used? The Messiah, the Prince.
0: Messiah, the Prince. This is a prediction of Jesus. Now, that's very important to understand because in recent years— in academic circles since the 1800s and in popular circles since the 1900s, a lot of people have twisted this prophecy to make it say something that it doesn't actually say. If you talk to Christians today, they'll say Daniel 9 is really talking about the Antichrist. Well, that's not what it says. It's talking about Jesus Christ, Messiah the Prince, not Antichrist. And it tells us there's going to be seven weeks plus 62 weeks from the command to rebuild Jerusalem until Jesus shows up. So, Cyrus sets the Jews free to go home and rebuild the city and the temple and that there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks after that point when Messiah shows up.
1: So I'm guessing because it talks about rebuilding that some people use this passage to point out last-day temple being built in Jerusalem in our times.
0: Exactly, and that's the most popular thing you'll hear nowadays, but that is not what this passage is talking about at all. This is rebuilding the city of Jerusalem, which was destroyed by the Babylonians.
1: And the reason it's broken up into 7 plus 62 is because 7 weeks would be 49 years, and that's how long it took to rebuild.
0: That's exactly right. Because of that, we know exactly when this prophecy starts, too. The decree to rebuild Jerusalem was issued by the Persian king Artaxerxes in... Well, they had such great names back then. I want you to call me Artaxerxes, <laughs> Artaxerxes. around the house. Will you do that? Call I, me Artaxerxes? I won't do that. Your no. majesty, Artaxerxes?
1: No, I won't do that.
0: How about just your majesty?
1: No, not that either. Oh. Sorry. All
0: right. So Artaxerxes issues the decree to rebuild the city of Jerusalem in 457 B.C. And he not only sends the Jews home, he gives them all the money they need to rebuild the city. If you want to read the decree, it's in Ezra chapter 7. So you add... 7 plus 62, which is 69 weeks, and then you get 27 A.D.
1: And some people are going to get 26 A.D. because there's no year zero. That's right. But 1 B.C. was immediately followed by 1 A.D., so you have to add 1 to the total, and that takes you to 27. That's right. That's why my math right. seemed
0: bad. You add 1 to the total, okay. and so because there's no year zero. You're quite right. What is 27 A.D.? Well, the Bible describes that. Well, we know 27 A.D. was what? is known as the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar. And according to Luke chapter 3, that's the very year that Jesus is baptized and uh, sets foot in public as Messiah, the voice of God, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. He begins his public ministry. See, a lot of people have wondered, why doesn't Jesus do very much for the first 30 years of his life? We have the story of him in the temple, but he doesn't do anything. Why does he wait until he's about 30 years old? Well, because Daniel's prophecy said it's not time for Messiah the prince to show up yet so he doesn't do much until 27 AD. Right on schedule, he steps out in public and begins his ministry. So this prophecy in Daniel 9 is not really about the last days, although there is a link to the last days in this prophecy. It's not really about the second coming of Christ, even though there are some apocalyptic overtones. This is talking about Jesus and his first coming. He steps out on the world stage right on schedule, and Messiah the Prince shows up uh, from 69 weeks or 69 weeks of years, after the decree to rebuild the temple. But then it gets more specific. Look at verse 26. It says, And after the 62 weeks, from the completion of the building of the temple, to Messiah, shall Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. When was Messiah cut off? When would Jesus have been cut at off? At the cross. At the cross, exactly. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war, desolations are determined. All right. Remember, the whole premise of this prophecy is that Daniel's people in Daniel's city are going to get a second chance that also lasts 490 years. When you get to the Gospel of Matthew, you see Jesus in Matthew chapter 23. He's weeping over the city of Jerusalem. He's literally, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem, you know, how often have I not called to you? I've sent you prophets. And then he says, your house shall be left desolate and then in the next chapter he says not one stone will be left upon another and that's exactly what happened after jesus was crucified cut off for us the romans came and sacked the temple in ad 70 and they didn't leave one stone left upon another and the reason they didn't is that a whole bunch of people went and hid in the temple when the romans decided they were going to pull into town and do some damage and so they're hiding in the temple and josephus the historian tells us that one of the roman soldiers took a lighted torch and tossed it in the temple but it had cedar inside of it that was so old and dry, it immediately caught flames. And the temple burns. And all the gold in the temple began to melt and run into the cracks between the rocks. So when the fire cooled down, what do you think the Romans did? They pulled the stones apart to get at that gold that had run into the cracks. And so what Jesus said, not one stone was left upon another, was exactly fulfilled. All right? Verse 27. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many, with, with many for one week. Okay, let's pause there. Some people get really confused at this point. The last thing Daniel described was the Romans coming to sack the temple. That happened exactly the way that it was predicted. So people assume in verse 27 that the person confirming a covenant with God's people must be an evil person, the one who sacked the temple or destroyed it, and they say it's the Antichrist. But the reason we do that is because we're reading this like a modern Western audience would read it. The prophecy is written in parallel structure. Verse 26 mentions Messiah, then it says the Romans would come to destroy the temple. Now in verse 27, it says the same thing again. It talks about Messiah, and then it talks about the destruction that the Romans would do to the temple. Here's what it says. Verse 27. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for how long? One week. One week. But in the middle of the week, he, and you'll notice how the translators have translated the word, uh, capitalized the word he. So Why do you Jesus. think the translators did that? Right, it's Jesus. He shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. Now some people say, that he is the Antichrist, and he's going to make a covenant with the Jewish people in a rebuilt temple, and in the middle of the week he's going to break that, and he's going to destroy their ability to sacrifice. Except the translators have capitalized at he for a very good reason. The subject here is Messiah the Prince. Did Messiah confirm the covenant with many for one week? Yeah, absolutely he did. First, he preaches and has ministry for three and a half years, then he goes back to heaven, turns the ministry over to his disciples who continue... Until 34 AD, exactly seven years later, when Stephen the deacon is stoned and the gospel now goes out to the Gentile nations. So Jesus confirms the covenant both in person and through his disciples for one week. In the very middle of that week, he is cut off, brings an end to sacrifice and offering uh, because, as you remember, the veil in the temple was torn in two. And um, and sacrifice came to a stop as Jesus is crucified because we didn't need those little lambs anymore and so on. This is talking about Jesus. It's not talking about Antichrist. And um, then it finishes by saying, On the wing of abomination shall one be one who makes desolate even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. So here's the big question. Where is Donald Trump in that prophecy?
1: He's not. It's talking about Jesus. It's
0: talking about Jesus. Um, some people insist... That because in 2018, Donald Trump declared Jerusalem the capital of Israel 70 years after Israel became an independent nation in 1948. See, this is talking about Donald Trump. And so they even meant, uh temple half shekels. That's what you paid your dues at the temple with. And it has Cyrus and Trump on it. But there's no basis for this whatsoever. Uh, there's just nothing in there that talks about Donald Trump. Here, here's the issue. And we have all these questions. We only did like three questions today. Yeah, because we got again, lots more here. <laughs> well, I know, because you were so chatty. You just kept yakking away and I filling up all the time. I it from my dad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Here's what we do. Because we've lost the ability to read the Bible the way our ancestors did, we cherry-pick the data, and we find one verse in Revelation that seems to fit something in the news today, or one verse in the book of Daniel that fits something in the news today, and we, we go nuts. We'll write a book. See, it's a fulfillment of prophecy. Then about four years goes by, and we have to apologize for the book we wrote because we were wrong. What we've been doing is lifting Bible prophecy out of its context, the context of the time it was written in, which is all important, understanding the day and age it was written in, the context of the rest of the Bible. So, for example, the book of Revelation, two-thirds of the language in Revelation is actually borrowed from the Old Testament. So if you want to understand what it means, you go to the Old Testament, you have to read the whole Bible, and suddenly the meanings become obvious. And when you become familiar with the history and the context of the whole Bible, it's obvious that a chapter like Daniel 9 is talking about the arrival of Jesus his three-and-a-half years of public ministry, his three-and-a-half continued years of ministry with the disciples, and the destruction of the temple by the Romans. It's obvious when you read the whole Bible that that's what's going on. But instead, what we do is take three verses out of Daniel 9 and apply them to the evening news, and suddenly Donald Trump is Cyrus, and, uh, and it's talking about moving the American embassy into the city of Jerusalem. It's an irresponsible way to do Bible study, and no wonder the whole world is laughing at us. So there you go. You filled up all the time talking and talking and talking. Tell me a little bit about how you study the Bible. What's your favorite way to do it?
1: I I like to take a book and read it through, basically looking at every verse. Um, just recently I read through First and Second Corinthians. Uh, that one is probably my favorite because Paul has so much to say. Um, <laughs> he sure a, does. Yeah, a lot of it's, you know, it's tightly packed in there and a lot of the verses really have a whole lot of meaning.
0: So you're not taking the approach where you flip the Bible open, point to a verse, and that's your verse of the day. No. 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 You're doing it exactly the right way. You've got to read the whole thing. That's why we do the Revelation Speaks Peace Seminar, and I think that's coming next to Raleigh, North Carolina. If you live in North Carolina, go to revelationspeakspeace.com, and we teach. Look, if you read the whole book, even the prophetic passages fall wide open and make perfect sense. Is Donald Trump in Bible prophecy? Certainly not in Daniel chapter 9. And I hear the music. That means that we're out of time again. And so Jamie Simon of Discovery Mountain. Uh, where's the website where kids can get a copy of that uh, that thing? Is it discoverymountain.com?
1: Discoverymountain.com.
0: And Season 7 is going up there pretty soon?
1: Pretty soon, yep.
0: Pretty soon, Season 7. If you've got kids, you'll want to look at discoverymountain.com. And, uh, otherwise, if you're looking for Bible study resources, go to voiceofprophecy.com and click on the study link. We've got Bible study, we've got links to these shows, and now I'm definitely out of time.